0: Welcome to the Good Cities Podcast, where we're releasing the good in cities for the good of cities, brought to you by goodcities.net. Here's the eighth and final part of our series based on Reggie McNeil's latest book, Kingdom Collaborators, Eight Signature Practices of Leaders Turn the World Upside Down. Today's podcast focuses on the practice of pain-tinged optimism, This practice is one that helps leaders deal with burnout and compassion fatigue that can easily drag a leader down. For leaders seeking to advance the kingdom, we need to build resilience into our lives so that we can lead effectively. In this eighth podcast, Reggie and Glenn Barth, president of Good Cities, offer insights into how leaders develop a resilient approach to kingdom collaboration.
1: Welcome again to another podcast from Good Cities. This is Glenn Barth the president of Good Cities, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, our city coach, Reggie McNeil. Reggie, welcome to the podcast today.
2: Always good to be with you, Glenn.
1: Yes, and we're here today talking about uh, Kingdom Collaborators, your recent book, uh, and uh, the eight signature practices of leaders who turn the world upside down, or in kingdom terms, right side up. And Reggie, it's so, good. Yeah, it's so good to have you uh, being able to comment directly on this, and I think all of our listeners will agree that these eight podcasts that we've been doing in this series are really helpful for building and strengthening us in our kingdom vision for ministry.
2: Well, I'm just glad we could do it. I think it's driven sales to 12, so um, we're, we're killing it with these podcasts, no question.
1: Well, I think you're going to have to go on a book tour then.
2: Reggie, I'm sorry <laughs> that we had
1: to put you out there like that, but uh, that's the nature of being a city coach. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Okay. Uh, so
1: today, Reggie, let's, let's talk about the final signature practice of Kingdom Leaders and that you've noticed through the years. Uh, you say that Kingdom Leaders maintain a pain-tinged optimism. Talk about that.
2: It's kind of hard to say because it's kind of hard to, uh, it was kind of hard for me to describe. Um, Kingdom leaders don't suffer any illusions about the challenges of helping people enjoy the life that God intends for them on this earth. I mean, that's how you and I talk about kingdom. It's about a quality of life. It's not about a place or anything. It's about God's dream for humanity and, and and. corporate as well as for us individually. And so these kingdom leaders are, are, you know, praying and working for that kingdom reality to become uh, manifest on earth, and they're pained that by the conditions and the situations that that militate against God's good designs, I mean, to the point that uh, they've been moved to challenge the status quo, like we talked about before in one of our other uh, signature practices, but in spite of the odds and difficulties they face, as these leaders battle, you know, just evil forces, uh, you know, that keep people from experiencing the life God has for them, they somehow have the capacity to remain hopeful. They are surprisingly optimistic, but not in a Pollyanna sense. I mean, their optimism is what I call pain tinged. It is an optimism that is fully informed by and is grounded in the realities of this world and what they're facing as they try to co-conspire with God for bringing about his kingdom on earth.
1: Yeah, and and Reggie, as you talk about this, you, you open the chapter with an illustration from Jesus' life with his disciples. Talk a little bit about that Passover supper that you write about.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I can't think of a probably a, a better example. I mean, Jesus, of course, is the paramount kingdom leader on the planet, and can you imagine just the confluence of um, emotions uh, for that last gathering? I mean, he knows what's headed his way, uh, but yet he chooses to celebrate. I mean, he's a good, observant Jew, but more than that, he's, He's celebrating a coming future that he can see, and I, I I can only imagine that he reveled in the good you know celebration, good wine, good food, good conversation that was happening as part of a Passover feast celebration. Uh, but at the same time, being weighed upon heavily, of course, even with you know the exchange with Judas and. Uh, judas impromptu leaving and and or jesus (laughs) insistence that you know hey let's get it on Uh, and and maybe even that last little bit there was just to say clear him out of the room so i can enjoy my last few minutes here with these guys um you know that i've really come to love so I, i think of that session um that experience is kind of a almost like a uh, da Vinci painting to capture these two colliding, um, uh, two colliding forces of, of pain and hope. Mm. Mm. And
1: to do that around the, the meal setting, Jesus uh, really is taking the time to, uh, to, to speak a vision at that point to them, to help them see that there's a future beyond what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. What's going to happen in the next three days? Jesus begins to just lay it out for them in some clear terms and then gives them a key sacrament that would be celebrated throughout the life and the history of the church. Such a powerful moment of vision casting that Jesus does, even though he knows that the the next day is going to be the most difficult day of his Mm. entire life that will result in his death. And so uh, so Jesus takes the time to do that. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he gives them an example in prayer and how he puts God's will above all things. But this supper really is the last chance Jesus gets to speak a clear and positive vision to them of the future.
2: Well, and, he, and, he, and you and I have experienced this where we'll hear a message or or we'll have a, Insight from God or something in our spirit that we quite don't understand at the t- at the time, but subsequent events we look back and see it with great clarity <laughs> exactly what the spirit was trying to say to us or was saying to us uh, at the time to help prepare us for that uh, the reality that was headed our way. Jesus the same way is talking still as his as was his obsession about the kingdom he he starts with the kingdom he ends with the kingdom and uh and so he you know he talks about we're going to sit down in uh, my father's house we're going to have this in in the kingdom we're going to do this some more i which i find to be um uh, you know since i've dieted most of my life i i uh i'm thrilled to know that uh the kingdom Heavenly King gets inaugurated with a feast. I'm I'm pretty pretty excited about that.
1: Yeah, those of us who might be smiling or, or laughing are, are laughing with you, Reggie, not at you about that. <laughs> oh,
2: <my God. laughs> yeah. right. Well, you know, may, maybe surely, surely the goodness with some of these uh, rules that we operate will be suspended in the afterlife, and uh, calorie counting won't be one of our scorecards. Oh, I'm hoping.
1: Well, judging by most of the communion wafers I've had, I don't think I've ever gained
2: an ounce. <clears throat> oh, man, yeah. What we, <laughs> let's don't even talk about what we've done to the supper. I mean, oh, oh Lord. Well, anyway, yeah.
1: Rich, uh, you know, it's interesting. We are so human. Uh, Jesus was was the most human of humans, and he rose above it in that moment to be able to give them a great vision. But not all of us do that. I mean, uh, I have to say that, uh, that, that we're just so prone to the psychological, emotional, and, and, and spiritual conditions of the moment that, that sometimes it just robs us of joy, it robs us of hope, and yeah. sometimes puts us in a position of, of feeling burnout and compassion fatigue. Um, you know, these are two different conditions, and yet they have some similarities. and uh, and some differences. Why don't you lay out for us some of the similarities and differences between these and how a leader might be overtaken by them?
2: There's no question about it, that um, burnout and compassion fatigue really take a toll on kingdom leaders because they're always uh, in in an uphill uh, kind of struggle. Um, It was the psychologist Herbert Frodenberger who kind of, coins the term burnout or at least gets credit for it whereas it was the health community that created uh, the term or recognized the condition of compassion fatigue and they do have some similarities I mean you know both are uh, accompanied by exhaustion and and you know sense of boredom or or even almost cynicism maybe some impatience irritability um, you know feeling of not being appreciated and you know just in and, and even psychosomatic complaints and depression in the worst case suicidal thoughts at least in burnout but but the the thing that i think to to know about them is is that in one case in burnout particularly i think it's some internal things that set us up for that and now both of these conditions are impacted by external circumstances but with burnout, you you really have the person experiencing it um, in doing some self-inflicting wounds. For instance, uh, in a lot of the folks that I work with that experience this, uh, they they suffer from approval addiction. So they just keep working past and trying to please everybody past way past any boundaries that are helpful or healthful for them. Healthful for them. And so they just exhaust themselves, or they may have an achievement or performance standard base that, that just keeps pushing them to do more and more. Um, I also think that oftentimes when we're working outside of our strengths, um, that's, that's a situation that just really presents itself for burnout. In fact, uh, I think a lot of times burnout in ministry, folks, comes from dealing with prolonged trivia. I mean, in, in what when we're working on stuff that's outside of our strength set, our talent set, it always feels like trivia and a drain on us. Whereas if we're working right in the sweet spot of of what talent we bring to the table, we can rest and get rejuvenated. Not so if we're uh, uh, consistently draining um, out our our emotional, spiritual, and psychological batteries by working outside of our strengths. And then, too, of course, the modern life has just pushed everybody to the edge. I mean, anxiety is, is um, <clears throat> at record levels, it seems, even though when you uh, look at uh, the condition, I mean, uh, we're, we're not being um, combated by a foreign enemy. We don't have major – I mean, we have full employment economy. I mean, there are many things in America – for instance that are that are going quite well, but uh it seems that everyone is just uh uh fixated on um issues and anxieties, particularly the younger you go i mean the millennials are just uh it's it's just pathological uh well, it's, a, it's it runs wild with them now i i think in that that's with burnout in other words, you gotta look inside yourself with burnout and say what makes me subject to this?" Um, and and so I think you have to know what the source is, and you've got to reassert your own values and spend some time with people that give you energy and, and things like that. Now, when it comes to compassion fatigue, I think you look outside of yourself, um, and, and and you take a look at, at what brings this on, and, uh, and you need to make some decisions. Uh, you need to realize that the condition that's causing this or whatever is, is not something you need to blame other people for. I you know I, I've been to a physician before that seemed angry that I was ill. <laughs> Isn't that the point of being there? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I think yeah. probably as a pastor, you know, I I I got to the place sometimes where if I have one more couple come in here with problems, I just think, you know, I'm just going to uh scream. And so you really have to you realize these folks that aren't gunning for you. I mean, this this is a condition in their life. I think it's important in in compassion fatigue when that happens that we we really have folks that that we're talking to to kind of uh, unburden that. I know most, if not, I mean, the great majority of counselors, for instance, that just listen to people's challenges and problems all day long um, have very intentional conversations with colleagues to, debrief and debug and, and unload that stuff I mean that's just a if you're a toxic dump you know emotional dump and peoples come and trash that uh, I mean and, and we've all been in situations or times like that you got to talk it out with somebody you might even need to change your schedule you know just get some time off uh, create some margin uh, I certainly uh, encourage people to play more um, I, I think we're at a huge play deficit in our culture, uh, and a lot of people, when they do play, they make it feel like so much work, uh, you know, just to play. But I, I mean just literally play. Uh, I think um, kids could teach us something there. It's a great stress reliever, and it clears the brain. Um, and then, of course, there's some things to avoid, you know, like uh, over self-medicating through overindulgence in alcohol or nicotine or some other kind of stimulants or downers, whatever. And then I, I think in, if you realize this condition that you're in, whether it's burnout or compassion fatigue, I think you have to make sure uh, that you resist the temptation to do something drastic uh, to regain your emotional energy. And I mean, you may feel that you need to do something drastic. And for you, if taking a day off is drastic, do it anyway. But but, uh, I mean, that should be a sign to you right there that something's out of kilt. But I'm talking about changing locales, changing jobs, or, or inflicting harm on yourself in some way, um, just or, or, or just exploding on coworkers or whatever. Then you, you've just got to resist the temptation in the middle of that. And the reason I discuss burnout and the compassion fatigue um, in this setting is these are some of the things that are just kind of the constant drip, drip, drip that can uh, just kind of keep keep the pain-tinged element always there in the kingdom leader's life. It is not something to avoid. You cannot avoid it, and if you feel like you're trying to avoid that, then you're just setting yourself up for more trouble. Um, you, it's really a question of managing this. I mean, it was our chart. Friend of mine, former uh, dean of psychology at Fuller, that said uh, to a bunch of pastors, uh, surviving the pastor, he said, is a matter of of, of managing depression. And so um, you have to just have a full reality here, and that's why in this whole discussion with Kingdom Collaborators, just knowing that it's a reality that that uh, we face constantly. Uh, some of the the dark underbelly of our culture and some of the dark sides of of people and and situations. And so you have to learn how to manage that level of of pain in your life. Boy, Reggie,
1: these soft
2: skills are
1: so important. And I I have to say that when I was at Gordon-Conwell preparing for the ministry, the last thing I wanted to study, I, I loved the academic piece of it, But the last thing I really wanted to get into was those pastoral care classes where you had to work on problems and figure out how you're going to deal with them. And yet, they were probably the most important classes being offered. And I just kind of, uh, I know, I walked into the first pastorate, and I did all the wrong things in terms of setting myself up for burnout. I really did. Yeah, um, yeah. You really need to be able to be open, I think, at some point to have somebody say to you, hey, um, have you noticed that, that you've kind of lost your boundaries and the uh, and margin's been squeezed out of your life and, you know, your wife is beginning to wonder whether you have a, a mistress over at the church because you're there so much? Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, well, and, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you're right. I mean... And, and what's interesting, Arch, uh, Hart, again also uh, gave a talk uh, one time. I had him in speak to a group of pastors, and he talked about how burnout is God's plan for your life. And and that sounds kind of you know cynical and and all that, but you know if you knew Arch, he'd always say something like that with a twinkle in his eye. But the point is, in in your experience and in my experience, often it's running slap into these you know to burnout that that teaches us a lot about ourselves. Hmm. And so I say the earlier you can get there, <laughs> get there quick, learn so you can get out of it. And, you know, you may always walk with a limp, but you, you, you <laughs> at least have that limp. that It's going uh, to remind you, don't do that again. It would
1: have been nice if I could have figured out that those case studies that they were using in the pastoral care classes were actually going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, yep. just, I just had to experience some of those things, like you say, and then suddenly I say, holy cow, there's some resources I really need right now. And I was fortunate that I had some good friends around me who could yep. help reflect with me on what was going on and how we could get, begin to move in a, in a new direction. Reg, talk a okay. little bit about how do you become you know, a, a resilient leader. Uh, I know you've talked about the negative challenges and how burnout and uh, how compassion fatigue can take us down. But, uh, and and it, and it really, it, it happened with the Apostle Paul. It happened with David. It happened with many folks who felt like they were really at the bottom. and yep. And yet they became resilient leaders by taking some positive steps. Share some of the insights about, how a person can become a resilient leader?
2: you know it's interesting the u s Army has spent billions on uh resiliency training and um because if we want to look at an example of what uh, a, a situation outside of church or ministry, our military's never been at war this long and um and the toll of five and six deployments, seven, even more, um, on the military lives and, and families. I mean, it, I, I don't know if our listeners are in touch with how brutal this is in terms of uh, just the decimation of uh, military families in so many cases. And um, and that's not even the PTSD and all that, but uh, it just... just uh, so, so the armies realize, the military has realized this. I think more of us in the spiritual and and social sector need to understand resiliency is an important quality as well. So I, I, there's some things that, that I think help. First of all, resilient leaders, they've got the right mentality, mindset. They don't expect everything to go smoothly. I kind of alluded to that back in the burnout and the compassion fatigue section we just talked through. but I mean, if you think it's going to go well, uh, and you're not going to anticipate the obstacles, you're you're in a you, you've set yourself up first of all uh, for for a huge disappointment. I think resilient leaders, since they expect everything not to go smoothly, they also carry an expectation with them that they learn through experiences uh, that uh, you know temporary setbacks are what others consider failures. They see as learning opportunities, and I'm telling you that is not a simple little semantic uh, thing. That is a different mindset that allows some people to keep growing through pain, while others just shrink and um, and and lose their leadership. I think uh, what we can understand is that resilient leaders are grounded in relationships. They have people around them. They are not in isolation. Again, a key strategy that the enemy whose kingdom we are invading likes to use against kingdom leaders uh, is to isolate them because when we're isolated, we are most at risk. We don't have the uh, the, the hope and the help that we need from having strong relationships. Uh, I was just reading something uh, earlier today about... Um, uh, treatment uh, of folks in recovery ministries and, and all of that, uh, and the single biggest correlative to sustainability of uh, behavioral change is strong community, in other words, being grounded in relationships. I think resilient leaders, I mean, this is another way, uh, I mean, they maintain perspective. Um, that Yeah, they take the licks, but they don't allow tunnel vision to set in and say, this is all that's going on right now. There is a much bigger world out there and there are bigger opportunities and there are some things that are happening that are good. I do see that resilient leaders by and large tend to be decision makers and they tend to act decisively. They don't marinate in their own self-doubt and, uh, and ambivalence over you know days and weeks and months. They make a decision to do something, I mean, even if it's wrong, <laughs> get up and move, uh, you know, uh, move over, quit hitting your foot, whatever it is, but <laughs> they, they, you know, they, they make a decision and they act on it, and then they reassess. Uh, again, that's important than, uh, than just feeling paralyzed and trapped. And then when I work with individuals, I try to help them manage their worry by figuring out who they can worry with. Uh, you know, I say to them all the time, don't worry about yourself, for goodness sakes. But don't worry with the same person all the time either because then you wear them out. And typically it's the spouse that's at risk there. Um, and uh, But do you have a cadre of friends? Do you have relationships? You can just kind of spread the worry around. Um, I find that resilient leaders, um, they do work very hard. And I think that work itself is rewarding because there's a sense that I'm not being that I'm helping the situation. I'm not just a pinball in a pinball machine with stuff pushing me around. I have some autonomy here and some control over some stuff. And then I, I would I would think that resilient leaders have a they don't have the I problem that a lot of and and i by that I mean the letter I. They they tend to use we and us. They're part of a team. Uh, and 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 again that that really. Helps them to be set up for greater resilience. And finally, I'd say, resilient um, leaders practice gratitude. They have an air of gratitude about them that it's kind of like Paul, you know, when he's writing Philippians. I mean, he's in jail. He's had a uh, he he is expecting to get out. I mean, he's hopeful, you know, on that first imprisonment. But, but so the whole letter of Philippians is a thank you note. But it's in that letter that he says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation. Well, I think his gratitude is always his sense of gratitude uh, forms the backdrop for his capacity to be resilient and, um, and, and to maintain a, a right perspective. So those are just some of the things I see in, in resilience that are, that's critical. And every kingdom collaborator I know that has a long-time sustainable Um, impact on the folks around them prove themselves to be resilient. Mm.
1: You know, uh, back in the fall of 2017 in September, John Crosby, the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church, where Kathy and I attend, um, came into the congregation, and uh, and at the beginning of his sermon, he took a beautiful clay jar and smashed it on on the... uh, Dias, where he was standing and uh and he uh he then did a sermon about being treasures in jars of clay yeah. Yeah. and the next week he brought the he he brought the vase back and it was it had been glued together and because it had been shattered, there were holes all throughout it, and there was a light inside it and and uh you know what the apostle paul writes in second corinthians he's he's pretty broken because he's been rejected by these by the corinthian christians who pretty much asked yeah. him to have a letter from jerusalem so he could if they ever, if he ever wanted to come back and visit them again and yeah. uh, but but paul writes in second corinthians 4 he says for god who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And as we talk about burnout, as we talk about compassion fatigue and uh, and as we talk about resilience, um We have to remember, we're like Paul. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at uh, work in you. And I, I think if we can embrace these words of Paul, we'll realize that um, there are things in life and in ministry that might drag us down. I, I was talking to a pastor recently who told me about a staff member who has a uh, cancer and it and the staff member is in a high profile role and she she's not able to lead as she once did because the cancer has affected her so but it doesn't look like the cancer is going to necessarily take her life but it certainly has changed her life and Hmm. uh and and it's changed the life of the congregation and my pastor friend was saying to me I wonder, how, how do we handle this moment of grief? Uh, and, and we got to talking and we said, well, you know, in, in a congregation's life, there are always moments of grief, and some of us are closer to that person, whether it's a friend in a small group or whether it's a staff member. Uh, at that time, as a pastor, it, it's important to be able to rise up and recognize the need to extend compassion and love and at the same time realize that the, that the mission of the kingdom needs to go forward. There's other people in that same congregation right now who are celebrating. At uh, this time of year, it's June, so graduations are upon us, and lots of families are celebrating and having parties, and they're part of our congregation too. How do, right. you, uh, how do you keep the balance so that there's a sense of resilience about, carrying out a mission that God has given us, not just for the short term to take that hill, but, but for the long haul, so that the congregation doesn't get so caught up in a moment of grief that people who come are dragged down by it, but instead yeah. we can say we grieve, and yet we serve a Lord who gives us hope, and these two things, despair and hope, press against one another, it's the reality of life. We're living into that right now, and we invite you to live into it as well. If you're experiencing yeah. grief or, or brokenness, tell us about it. It's important to us. We want to pray because there is a God of hope in the midst of your despair who doesn't want to leave you there. And if you're experiencing a great celebration, tell us that too. We want to celebrate with you, and, uh, and, and we want to prepare for all of life that gives us a foundation. That life is lived off the rock of Jesus Christ, that give, the one who gives us hope in the midst of despair, the one who helps us remember when we're celebrating that we don't, we won't always be on that mountaintop.
2: So, well, you you mentioned too uh, in, in the sermon illustration you gave about the Second Corinthians treasure in jars of clay. You mm-hmm. know, for years and like say jars of clay, they're pretty fragile. Oh, yeah. um, and even when you patch them up, you can't, like you already said, I mean, you, even the pieces that did come together, you can glaze over them, but you can see the brokenness. Uh, it's just embedded. But but I think I didn't understand that a long time because I thought about clay jars as ornamental. But in mm-hmm. Paul's time, th- they were very functional. Uh, mm-hmm. They were often uh, water uh, carriers clay and so this was really a a statement about maintenance because you always people who walk miles to get water or whatever Mm. they they look after their jars of clay trust me Mm. because they don't want to walk two miles and realize there's a slow leak here and i've lost you know half of the water i've got or whatever so it's it's really an encouragement i think paul is in, in that among the things that you've also already said, I think there's the impl- implied, implicit encouragement for us to practice the self-maintenance that's critical for us to be in this thing for the long haul, and um, and, and and the and the key is uh, to recognize both aspects of life are just with us as you as you were aptly saying. We're
1: you, you know. One of the things for the Apostle Paul was I actually think when he was in prison in Ephesus and and writing to the Corinthians, the Corinthians were looking for some strong, powerful leader in Paul. Uh, Didn't choose to be in prison, I'm sure. But uh, Paul began to feel pretty bad about the fact that he was in prison and couldn't live up to this uh, great debater and great uh, leader that he had been when he'd been in their midst. And, uh, and, in fact, I think from what I read, Paul appears to have gotten to the point of depression. But what brought him out of that depression was realizing that the downward path, the path of the suffering servant, the wounded healer, is the path of imitation, imitating Jesus Christ. It's, it's that very same path yeah. that suffering is part of the imitation of Christ, and, uh, and, and so rejoice even in the midst of brokenness and suffering, and uh, and rejoice especially that you have friends and others who are trying to live in this community of, uh, yeah. of followers of Jesus Christ in this time.
2: Well, I can tell you, hope wins, uh, and that's the kingdom message. And that's why I put in this particular chapter, living with a pain tinged, and the pain tinged is in parenthesis, because it's temporary. Pain is temporary. Hope is eternal. The kingdom's eternal.
1: Well, that's a great place to end. I hope you've enjoyed this eight-part series that Reggie and I have done on Kingdom Collaborators, Eight Signature Practices of Leaders Who Turn the World Upside Down. If, if you haven't gotten a copy of the book and you've listened to all eight of these, you should still go out and get a copy of the book. And And we would encourage you to do small group studies in in your church or in your community using this book so that you can become a Kingdom collaborator and you can encourage others to lead in this collaborative way as well. Collaboration is one of the three key values at Good Cities. We say we value leadership, innovation, and collaboration. And Reggie, I'm so glad you've joined the team at Good Cities and and really brought the way leaders collaborate and innovate when they work together. And uh, it just means the world to us to, uh, to have this book as a great resource that we can recommend to others.
2: Thanks, Glenn. Appreciate it.
1: Well, we've come to the end of this podcast. Uh, and, of course, as we come to the end of any podcast, we want to encourage you to be uh, in touch with us. If, if you found this to be meaningful, you can reach Uh, either me or Reggie at Good Cities, simply by emailing info at goodcities.net. And we wanna encourage you to recommend this podcast to others. We're always going to be adding new and uh, relevant resources that'll help you as a kingdom leader move the ball forward in your community. Thanks again for joining us. This is Glenn Barth and uh, I'm again with uh, Reggie McNeil, our city coach. We're so glad that you joined us today. We'll see you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Good Cities podcast. We hope you'll subscribe and listen in on future episodes. To get more information about Good Cities, join our email list, or to find out how to get involved in making your city a good city, visit
1: goodcities.net.